Christ is for everyone. A podcast about celebrating the goodness of life in the love of Christ. We are continuing the Bible study on the Nicene Creed, and now we're reaching what is called the third article of the Creed. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeded from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. Um, Today we are going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, particularly. And next week, I want to talk about that line that says uh, he spoke through the prophets or he spoke by the prophets. So next week, we will talk about the way in which the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets because it's a, a critical part of the apostles' teaching. The apostles believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of, the God, Son of God, because as they followed him around from place to place... And you notice this when you read the Gospels. Um, They remembered that certain words in the prophets were written and they saw those things being fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so they, of course, being Jews, they went to the synagogue every Saturday. They heard the readings just like we come here every Sunday and we hear the Bible readings. Um, They know the prophets. They knew what the prophets were saying. They knew sort of what the, the prophets spoke about. And they saw those things being fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is where the idea that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets comes from. Um, Now, of course, until the thing happens, can you know for sure that God spoke through that person? For example, a prophet utters a prophecy, all right? Tomorrow at this time, such and such will happen. Until it happens, you don't know whether God spoke through that person or not, right? Maybe they're very impressive. Maybe there's um, a lot about them that really, you know, commends them to you. But until it actually happens, you don't know. Right? They say that the apostles said that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets because they saw what the apostles or they saw what the prophets said come true in Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. And I'm excited about that because I write a lot about this in my dissertation. So, you know, I, I won't have to prepare as much for next week because the, the stuff's all here in my head. This week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit as a person distinct from the Father and the Son. Now. There are three things that I want to talk about, uh, three things that we're going to go over. There is the divinity of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is, um, has to do with the fact that the apostles and the Jews in the first century were anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit. And third, there's the effects of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what, is, what does a person look like? What, what the effects does the Holy Spirit produce in a person? That's what we're going to be talking about. The first part is the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The second part is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the third part is the effects of the Holy Spirit. So we'll cover these one by one. The first point to know is that the Holy Spirit, just like the Father and the Son, is God. This is the first thing. This is what they gathered in Constantinople in the year 381, This is what they gather together to come up with, to make this statement, that the Holy Spirit is God 
together with the Father and the Son. Just like we worship God the Father, so also we worship the Son. Now, if the Son were not God, we could not worship Him, just like we worship the Father. All right, this is an important point because God says you should have no other gods before me. All right, I will not share my glory with another. Do not bow down to any other God. Okay, so in the Jewish mentality, you were supposed to worship God alone. You could not worship any other thing. So from the fact that we worship Christ, this must mean that Christ is equally God together with the Father. Now, this is difficult to understand because does that mean that there are two gods? No. But then how is there a distinction between the Father and the Son? You will recall when, I, um, when we spoke about the first lecture on Christ, about Christ the God-man, who has a divine and a human nature. You will recall that uh, the way the Bible talks about Christ, on the one hand, it talks about him as if he's God, but on the other hand, it distinguishes between Christ and his Father. All right, so you can think about it like uh, if we were detectives investigating a case, okay? And we do not have, for example, video evidence of the crime being committed. All we have are pieces of evidence. And this piece of evidence suggests this, and this piece of evidence suggests that, but we cannot see the big picture, right? At, at, at the very least, what we have are distinct pieces of evidence that suggest contrary pictures, but we know they have to be connected to the reality in some way. That's what it's like with God. God is not something that we can just pull down from heaven and put him under a microscope and figure out what he's like. All right, God reveals himself to us. Just like, for example, you could not know me unless I were to reveal myself to you. If I don't tell you what my name is, where I'm from, if I never speak, if I try to hide my face, you will never know who I am. All right? In order for us to know a person, that person has to show themselves in some way. So also, we cannot know God. This was my point in the, the second lecture. We cannot know God unless God reveals himself to us. What we can know purely on the basis of philosophical reason, so to speak, is that God exists and that he's the cause of everything. But that doesn't tell me anything about what he's like. It doesn't tell me who he is, what he's like, what he wants from me, whether he's interested in me at all, whether he just caused everything to exist and leaves it alone, or whether he's leading everything somewhere. All these things are mysteries, unless God shows them to us, unless he reveals himself to us. And the apostles thought that God did reveal himself to us in Christ. Therefore, John says in the Gospel according to John, no one has seen the Father, but the only Son has made him known. Now, Christ is the revelation of God, but in this revelation of God, we have this tantalizing, you know, incompleteness. On the one hand, there's the Father and the Son. On the other hand, there's one God. So we're stuck in a mystery. This is the point that I'm trying to make. We're stuck in a mystery. When we're talking about God, you know, it's best to follow the, the rule of St. Augustine. He said, if you can understand it, it is not the Trinity. <laughs> if you can understand it, it is not the Trinity, right? So sometimes in Sunday school, they will give examples. The Trinity is like, you know, the three leaves of a clover, or the Trinity is like the three states of water, or the Trinity is like an egg that has the yolk and the, the, the white stuff and then the, the shell. Augustine would say those are all maybe useful for children, but if you want to really grapple with the realities, if you want to, you know, graduate from second grade math to calculus, if you want to move on to the, you know, the adult stuff, those things are inadequate. God is not three things together, like the, the parts of an egg. Neither is he the three states of matter, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coexist eternally, right? There's never a time where there's just the Father or just the Son or just the Holy Spirit, but water cannot be solid and liquid and gas at the same time, right? It's only ever one. So that's an inadequate analogy. 
Neither are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit like, you know, three parts of a clover's leaf. Because you can just pluck one and the leaf remains. But they are in an inseparable unity. They cannot be separated from each other. There is no Father without the Son. Neither is there a Son without a Father, obviously. And there is no Father and Son without the Holy Spirit. So all of our analogies fall, fall short. They do not manage to really explain what is God. At the very most... What we know is that, given how God has revealed himself to us in Christ, in Scripture, this is what we have to say. We have to say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God, that there's one God, that the Father does not reduce to the Son, nor vice versa, that neither of these two reduce to the Holy Spirit or anything like that. There's a distinction of persons in the theological language. There's a distinction of persons. There's a unity of substance or essence, and that's all that we can say. We have to look at it basically from... One of two angles. From the point of view of unity, there's one God. From the point of view of diversity, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you cannot sort of see the whole thing at once. You know, just like you can only ever see this piano from this side or from that side, and you're always looking at it from a point of view, and you never get a complete view of the whole thing. There's always a part that you're not going to see. That's what it's like with God. We know that there's one God because he created everything. At the same time, when this God comes into the world in Jesus Christ and he talks to us in our own language and he explains himself to us, he explains himself in such a way that we understand that there's a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is just the situation we are in. Uh, We're grappling with a mystery. But at the same time, I think that makes things more interesting. You know, half of the interest of life is precisely the fact that we don't know everything and there's always something more to know. You know, how, how interesting would, for example, your husband or your wife be if you knew everything about them, if they never surprised you, if there wasn't some element of mystery there, if they were totally predictable and you knew exactly what they were going to do every day. Maybe some people are like that. But I think even people who are like that, nevertheless, do have something mysterious about them, even if other people don't notice it. Every person is a mystery. My wife does not know me perfectly, even, even though we've almost been married for one year. She doesn't, yet, <laughs> she doesn't yet know me perfectly. There are things about her that she doesn't know, or things about me that she doesn't know or understand. There are things about her that I don't know or understand. Right? So there's always an element of mystery involved. So also with God. With God especially, because God is not just one more you know, person on the street that we can talk to now you know, and go you know, see anytime we want. He's mysterious. So... That's a, a preface by way of, you know, as a, as a sort of a disclaimer for this discussion about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is God, but how is it that there is one God and yet there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? These are, these are mysterious things. I, it is beyond my pay grade to answer that question for you, right? I have my PhD in theology. That means that I can explain to you why it's mysterious, but I cannot solve the mystery for you, right? So that's, that's the best that I can do. Maybe when Canon Dark comes back, we can ask him and see what he says. Um, Why do we say that the Holy Spirit is God? Why do we say that the Holy Spirit is divine? Why isn't the Holy Spirit merely some, you know, magnificent creature that God created? Perhaps like the Arians thought that Jesus was, right? The first creature of God. Uh, The first thing that God made and somehow he's very highly exalted and, you know, God uses him as sort of his messenger boy to get things accomplished. Why don't we say that the Holy Spirit is a creature? Well, if you will recall, in the discussion about the divinity of Christ, there were basically two arguments that I gave. One argument was that Christ talks about himself in such a way that he belongs on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. Right? You, remember that, you remember that distinction that we talked about, the distinction between the creator and the creature? This is critical in uh, 
in Jewish thought and Christian thought. The difference between the creator and the creature. The creator is the cause of everything. He's the source of everything. Nothing helps him. He doesn't gain his power from anywhere else. He doesn't depend on anything else. He gives life and existence and power and so on to everything else, but he doesn't get it from anywhere himself. You know, just like fire, for example, makes things hot, but nothing makes the fire to be hot. It just is hot. That's what it is to be fire. Or water wets things. It hydrates them, but nothing wets the water, right? The water is just like that on its own. So also God creates things. He causes them to exist, but nothing causes him to exist. He doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't get his life from anywhere. He has in himself this life, this, um, uh, this existence that he can share with other things, but he doesn't get it himself from anywhere else. He simply has it on his, of his own nature. Well, the first argument for the divinity of Christ was that Christ also acts and speaks in such a way that he comes from the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. He's not created like the rest of us. He comes from the creator side. Well, so also the Holy Spirit comes from the creator side. We can think, for example, very briefly of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And it says that the earth was formless and, and you know, shapeless and void, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Now, this is very interesting. This is a strange image. I don't know what it means, but I do know that when God creates everything, the Spirit is already there. Right? So he doesn't create the Spirit. The Spirit is not created. The Spirit is there with God. So also in the Old Testament, we find passages to the effect that God gives his spirit and that makes things to live. And then when he takes his spirit away, they die. This, you find passages like that, for example, in Ecclesiastes talking about the animals and also about human beings. We live because of the spirit of God. When God takes away his spirit, you know, we fall to the ground and we turn into dust. So we see that the Spirit gives life. It doesn't get life from anywhere. It's not as if God gives life to his own Spirit. The Spirit gives life. And when you take away the Spirit, life disappears. This shows that we depend on the Spirit, but he doesn't depend on anything. Right? So we can already see in the Old Testament, in a kind of a, a rudimentary way, the fact that the Spirit comes from God and the Spirit is very closely associated with God. But then in the New Testament... We see the way that Christ and the apostles talk about the Holy Spirit. They understand him to be a distinct person. Now, when I say, for example, person, this language of person is highly controversial. Okay, in Trinitarian theology, a person does not mean like one individual, you know, like a human person, an individual body that's separable from all other bodies and, um, you know, has his own personality. That's not what the, the word person means in Trinitarian theology. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they cannot be three persons in that sense because then we would have three separate gods, right? It's not like if you go into the furthest outreaches of space, you will see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, two of them on a couch and one of them on a chair and they're, you know, just watching everything happening on earth on a TV. That's not what, they, that's not what we mean by person. Person in theology means, uh, it's, a, it's a highly philosophical term. It means an individual thing of a rational nature. So an individual thing of a rational nature, this is the definition of person that comes from a theologian and philosopher named Boethius who lived in the 500s. An individual thing of a rational nature. Now, what does that mean, an individual thing of a rational nature? Human beings are rational, all right? We have reason. Cats do not have reason. 
So cats do not count as rational animals, but human beings do, right? Because we have, we're animals like the cats are. We have bodies, we, you know, we have to eat and drink and reproduce and so on. But in addition to this animal aspect, we also have rationality, right? So an individual thing of any, um, of any rational nature, that is what in the olden times, you know, 1500 years ago, they would call a person. An individual thing of a rational nature. So for example, um, if you have angels, if angels also have rationality, an individual angel would be a, ration, would be a person, right? Because it's an individual thing of a rational nature. Now, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father are called persons uh, because they are individual instances of a rational nature, namely the divine nature, okay? Did you know, for example, that God is not this impersonal blind force that doesn't think about what he's doing ahead of time and, you know, that simply is like this you know, bubbling, uh, boiling impulse that is behind things. No, he's personal. He thinks. He has knowledge, right? He has this rational aspect. Well, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are personal in the sense that they have a rational nature. However, at the same time, they are consubstantial. So they're not three individual things. There's somehow, in some very mysterious way that is beyond our ability to grasp, we have three persons, three individual substances of a rational nature, which nevertheless share one and the same essence. Now, this is, this is hard to understand. I'm losing you guys already, I can tell. But for the, sake of, you know, for the sake of theological clarity and purity, I have to go over these things. But let's talk about, let's see why. Why is the Holy Spirit a distinct person? Why can't the Holy Spirit just be the Father or the Son? Why is it a third person? Well, because that's the way Jesus talks about him. So if we go to John chapter 17, for example, excuse me, John chapter 16. Let's see how Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, uh, starting with verse 7. John chapter 16, verse 7. And we'll go to 15. But I tell you the truth. This is Jesus on the night before his death talking to his disciples in the upper room. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. So notice how Christ speaks about the Holy Spirit, who had not come yet, but would come after the resurrection at Pentecost. He says, the Holy Spirit is coming, and he's not going to tell you just anything he wants. He will tell you what he hears, and he will help you to understand things that I know from the Father. So... The way that Christ talks about the Holy Spirit, referring to him using the personal pronoun, he, saying that he doesn't, he won't say only, you know, he won't say whatever he likes, but only what he hears, and he will help you to understand things that I also know. 
the way that Christ speaks about the Holy Spirit, he suggests that he's personal <clears throat> and also that he comes from God and that he helps us to understand the things of God, just like Christ, for example, understands the things of God. So we see at one at the same time that the Holy Spirit comes from the creator side of the creator-creature distinction and also that he helps us to understand God. Now, this point is emphasized even further by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's read this one also. Now, you recall what I was saying just earlier, that unless a person reveals himself, you can't know anything about him, right? Knowledge has to come from the source. I cannot know Rachel by just talking to other people about Rachel. I have to go to her because maybe what they tell me is not true, right? So knowledge always comes from the source. So keep that in mind as we read this passage from, uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting from verse 9 all the way to verse 16. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So this is very fascinating. This is Paul's argument. He says, we come to know God and to understand reality from God's point of view because the Spirit enlightens us. Somehow, something happens on the inside. The Holy Spirit himself, you know, to use a metaphor, perhaps whispers into our minds, ears, so to speak, and helps us to understand the things that come from God. A person who does not have the Holy Spirit cannot understand the things of God. Just like, for example, if I were to go into a different country and I don't speak that language, people can talk to me until they're blue in the face. Can I understand them? No, right? We need to sort of belong to the same group. We have to be in somehow in connection with each other in order to understand each other. So also we cannot understand God unless the Holy Spirit himself changes us, somehow gives us understanding on the inside so that we can understand what God is saying to us in Christ. So notice here, we have the Father, the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. And this is a tight circle. And the only way to get into this circle is for the Holy Spirit to enlighten you and to make it possible for you to understand what the Father and the Son are saying and doing. But once more, this shows that the Holy Spirit comes from the God side, right? Within God, on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction, somehow, in some mysterious way, there is this fellowship. There's a friendship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our salvation consists in being brought into that circle of friends, so to speak. But the way that we do it is through the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit were just one more creature like the rest of us, if he were just on the creature side of the creator-creature distinction, he could not do that. He would need to be brought into the circle by somebody else. So who saves the Holy Spirit in that case? Who helps the Holy Spirit? 
this, you know, if, if these sentences are grating to, you know, your pious ears, that's because you sense intuitively as Christians, as people who have been, you know, initiated into what Christian religion is about, that it doesn't make any sense for the Holy Spirit to need saving, for the Holy Spirit to need enlightening by anyone, right? You can already tell that doesn't make any sense. It sounds bad to your ears. The reason why is because in our faith, in our Christian faith, as it was passed down by the apostles, even if the apostles themselves don't say this explicitly, nevertheless, implicitly in a kind of a seed form, there is a recognition that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son are God. And we learn from them, but we don't ever teach them. And we are saved by them, but we do not ever save them. None of them need saving, none of them need teaching, none of them need helping, but we are always helped by them. So that means that when we talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the one and only God. Even if there is this distinction between persons, even if the Spirit is not exactly the same person as the Father or the Son, nevertheless, we are talking about one and the same God. So this is the, uh, this is very briefly, you know, what Scripture says about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. This is the fact that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy a fellowship or a communion or a friendship, to use a, a kind of a very modern term, uh, they enjoy this friendship, this circle, from all eternity. And our salvation is basically being invited into this circle. Now, we do not become God by being made friends with God, just like I do not become Rachel by marrying Rachel, but nevertheless, we do bind ourselves very closely. So what salvation consists in is we are now being brought in by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into this circle of friendship and being brought very close and made to enjoy and to know uh, this, this circle and what it's trying to accomplish in this world that it created. Now, I use it. Again, when you talk about God, you can never, <laughs> you can never say two words without making a mistake. All right, so this is, this is the fact. I am sure that much of my language, if I were to sit back and to analyze it closely and to scrutinize it, I, I've made many mistakes until now. But it's not so important that we speak perfectly because then we would never speak. It's important that we try nevertheless to communicate what is, what is the essence of the matter, all right? And so the essence of the matter is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. We are saved by the Father, we're saved by the Son, we're saved by the Spirit. We do not save any of them, neither do any of them need saving. All right, this is the important point. This is the, the idea of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The next point, the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is another very critical point in apostolic teaching. Okay? If we look at Acts chapter 2, this is Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. The disciples gathered in the upper room, 120 of them, received the Holy Spirit. And miraculous things take place. They speak in other languages, and people on the street could understand what they were saying. Now, notice what Peter says. He says, listen, Christ was raised by the Father from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2, he says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Christ, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. So they understood that there was this promise that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, where does this promise come from? Well, Joel here, the prophet Joel prophesied about it. In the final days, I will pour out my spirit and old men will, 
what does he say here? Old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions and so on. So there was a promise in the prophets that in the final days, people would receive the Holy Spirit. What is the greater significance of this? If we turn to Paul, we see that the reception of the Holy Spirit means the end of the law. Here's another interesting point. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Now, what is the story in Galatians? Who knows? What was the problem? Why did Paul write this letter to the Galatians? Who can say? Yeah. So what was happening is that, well, in the, you remember from the first, the first lecture that we did in this whole series, in the olden days, in the beginnings of the church, there was a controversy, right? There are all these Gentiles who are believing in the Messiah and they're joining our group. What do we do about them? Do they have to become Jews like us? Do they have to get circumcised and begin to follow all the rules of the law and, you know, stop eating pork and so on? There was a controversy about this. The apostles decided, no, they do not. How did they decide that? Because when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, he preaches the gospel and Cornelius and all the people listening receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter says to himself, well, they've got the Holy Spirit. Now who can stop them from being baptized? Go ahead. And some other persons hearing about what had happened, are, they didn't like this because it sounded kind of bad. You know, it sounded like it wasn't quite right. So... They talked to Peter about him, and he says, God had already shown that he accepts them by granting them the Holy Spirit. So how could, I, how could I stand in front of their way? How could I keep them from being baptized when God himself has accepted them by sending the Holy Spirit? This is the critical point in the argument. The reception of the Holy Spirit means that God accepts you because God himself is welcoming you into the circle, so to speak. When you receive the Holy Spirit, when your mind is enlightened, when you believe in Christ, when you cling to the promises of the gospel, these things show that God himself has accepted you. So in that case, who can stand in your way? Who can demand that you do anything further when God himself has said, all right, you're in? Now, this is exactly the argument that Paul is going to make here in response to these persons who had gone to the churches in Galatia. Galatia basically is like the middle section of Turkey. All right, so the, he, he had gone to these places. He had planted churches there. Some other persons came along and started telling these Gentiles, unless you get circumcised, unless you start to follow the law of Moses, unless X, Y, Z, you are not saved, right? So Paul writes a letter to them and he says, no, 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 this is entirely wrong. So let's hear how Paul argues. Let's have somebody read Galatians chapter one, verses one and three. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my mistake. Galatians chapter three, verses one and three. (laughs) So notice how Paul argues. Paul's whole idea is that when you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything that you need. You are with God. You are now in the the circle of God's friendship, so to speak. So his argument to the Galatians is this. Listen, when I preached the gospel to you and I told you about Christ's crucifixion, you believed me. 
You were baptized and you received the Holy Spirit. Now some other people are coming along and telling you that's not enough. You need to also do this, this, and that. This doesn't make any sense. You start with God and you're going to make it perfect by, you know, following some laws about not eating pork. He, that's why he says, you foolish Galatians. He, he cannot even conceive that they would, not, they would miss this point. You are in fellowship with God. Therefore, not everything is okay. Not, you know, it's not kosher until you stop eating pork. You know, no pun intended. This doesn't make any sense. So he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having started with the spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? If you start with the spirit, if you start with the stronger thing, the better thing, how can you then move on to the worse thing, the weaker thing? And of course, Paul knows he'll make this point. The Jews have had the law since Moses. Which one of them was perfected through the law? Which Jew was ever, you know, exalted and deified and lifted up into heaven because he perfectly kept the law in the course of his lifetime? That never happened. So if that never happened, if the law cannot actually produce these things and God himself has granted you the Holy Spirit, why do you go back to the law? Why do you go to the weaker thing? It's like if you're being offered a million dollars, you know, but you go and steal five dollars from a, a, a gas station cash register. It doesn't make any sense. You, you're, you're giving up what is incomparable for what is extremely lowly and base. This is Paul's argumentation. And he goes on in, chapter, in, in the same chapter, verses 10 through 14. Let's have somebody else read 10 through 14. Yeah, keep going. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So this is, Paul's argument is very dense, and he doesn't, you know, present major premise, minor premise, conclusion. He kind of, a lot of times he argues retrospectively, but the idea is clear. He says, nobody is justified by the law. You are not going to be brought close to God by obeying the law. On the contrary, if you try to go that way, you're under a curse. Because everybody who doesn't obey the law is under a curse. And we all know that nobody can keep the law perfectly. All right? The Bible itself, the Old Testament, he says, knows that nobody is going to be justified by the law. Because it says the righteous will live by faith. He's citing there from the, the prophet... Uh, it's Habakkuk, I think. So he cites from the prophet Habakkuk, the, right, the righteous will live by faith. The Old Testament prophets themselves knew the law is not the way. Right? We now, when we believe in Christ, when we hear the gospel preached to us and we believe this and the Holy Spirit comes to us and we are baptized, that is what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. This is the goal. This is why the law was given to get us to this point. So how now, having reached the destination, do you go back on the road? You know, it's like you want to go to Flagstaff and then once you get to the, you know, once you get to um, the intersection, the 14 and the, seven, uh, the 17 and the 40, you turn around and start to go back to Kachina Village. Why? You've reached your destination and now you're going backwards. It doesn't make any sense. This is Paul's argument. The, the goal, the whole point of everything was so that we would receive the spirit so that we would be brought this close to God. 
so that we would live in friendship with God. This is what all of the Old Testament prophets, this is what God has been trying to accomplish since the creation of Adam. And now we have it in Christ. Christ gives us the Holy Spirit when we believe in him. So now that we've reached the goal, why do you go backwards? Why are you going backwards in time? It's like, you know, we've invented modern medicine, but you prefer to use, you know, sticks and, and stones and, and things from the caveman times. In Paul's mind, this doesn't make any sense. We are now at the, at the destination. This is where we've all been trying to go. So why go backwards now? This is the idea of the promise of the Holy Spirit. The whole goal of God, as I said from our first lecture, God's goal in creating this world was to enjoy friendship with the human being. We have that image in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, don't, tell me what, don't ask me what that means, because obviously God does not have feet. Did he assume a visible form for some reason? I don't know. That's very mysterious. But all that I know is that it means that from the beginning, God did not want to be far away from human beings. You know, for example, if you have children, do you have your children and then get rid of them immediately and have somebody else take care of them and not ever think about them again? No, in the normal case, in ordinary circumstances, you have a child and you also want to live with it, right? You want to be close. You want to see it grow up and you want to see it flourish. That's something like what God wanted to do. He created the human being. He gave the human being this wonderful earth to live in and to take care of. And he wanted to live close to the human being. He wanted to be in close friendship with the human being. Now, what stepped in? What intervened and broke that relationship? Sin. What is the solution for sin? Christ's death, right? And when we believe in Christ and when we turn towards him with faith, what happens to us? We're forgiven. What else happens? We're baptized. What else happens? It has to do with the subject of our talk today. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. All right. So through the Holy Spirit, through the receiving of the Holy Spirit, we are brought back in close relationship with God. What was broken at the beginning by Adam and Eve through their sin is now being restored in every Christian person who believes in Christ through the reception of the Holy Spirit. Once more, God is bringing us back close to him. Okay? This is the idea of the promise of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, there's the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us close to God. That's because the Holy Spirit is God. If the Holy Spirit were not God, it could, he could not bring us close to God. The promise from the beginning was that the Holy Spirit would bring us close to God, that we would receive the Holy Spirit and that we would live closely to God. So we have the divinity of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the effects of the Holy Spirit. All right. I remember this, uh, this image from a, a sermon. I, I personally don't like the preacher very much, and I think he can exaggerate, but I liked this image because I thought it was true. Right? Imagine somebody shows up late to work. Uh, and their suit is perfectly pressed and everything is clean and they've got a Starbucks coffee in hand, but they're, you know, 45 minutes late to work or whatever. And their boss asks them, why are you late? He said, oh, I got in this horrible car accident. This massive semi truck hit my car and it was all totaled. You know, are you going to believe the story? No. Why not? Because he doesn't look like it, right? Right? Encounters leave an impact on you, right? Sometimes people talk about having had an encounter, spent having spent years you know, at university with a really good professor or at, at a church with a really good mentor, and it left an impact on me. It changed who I was. You know, the authors that I read, for example, some of the authors that I've read have left a permanent impact on me. Their ideas form my mind in such a way that this is just who I am now. So also, when we have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, this produces a change in us. You, it, should, it should produce a visible change, right? Now, 
I don't want to sound like a legalist preacher. I am going to be the first to tell you that I sound almost nothing like the things that I'm about to read. We should always emphasize that these things, you know, the various, the fruit of the Spirit and so on, these things are there for us in a seed form. And they're there through faith in Christ. Okay, so at the utmost, a person who believes in Christ, who clings to Christ, that person has the Spirit. That person can always improve. It can, he can always become gentler. He can always become kinder. He can always become more wise. He can always, you know, so there's, a, there's room for improvement. So at the absolute minimum, a person who clings to Christ and who believes in Christ, that person has the Spirit. So I don't, I don't mean to, like, you know, put you into a shock or to make you wonder, do I not have the Spirit because I'm not, you know, praying for my enemies as they're murdering me like Stephen did in Acts I don't mean to do that. I do mean to allow us to be criticized by the Bible. So we should allow ourselves to be critiqued by the Bible. If we're not up to snuff, we should be able to hear it. But I don't mean to say, oh, you should despair now of your salvation and you do not have the Holy Spirit because you are not you know, brimming with kindness and with joy every day and you're, you're not perfectly happy and, and so on. I don't mean to say that. So with that disclaimer in mind, let's see. What does a person who has the Holy Spirit look like? Or not let's say what a person who has the Holy Spirit. A person who cultivates a relationship with God in the Holy Spirit. A person who, you know, just like you would water plants and they grow. What does it look like when this relationship that we have with God in the Holy Spirit, what does it look like when it grows? Well, the first place that we can look is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. And here Paul makes a distinction between the effects, the fruit of our sinful nature, you know, this this nature that we've inherited from Adam since the original sin, and the effects of the Holy Spirit in a person. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is very important. Okay, I do not think that Paul means to say that if you've ever been angry once in your life, you are automatically disqualified. However, we should think of it like this, I think. This is my suggestion. If you disagree, you are free to have another opinion. This is my suggestion. I think that what God is trying to do is to set up this world that he's created in, so, in such a way that only certain kind of people can really live there, right? Imagine you were dropped into the perfect world. Everybody there gets along. Everybody, you know, is peaceful. Everybody helps each other. Everybody loves each other. And you are dropped into this perfect world, imperfect such as you are, right? How long is it going to take before you ruin something? Before somebody annoys you, before something, you know, before someone steps on your toes, uh, before you're jealous of somebody else. All these things that are in us, right? So long as they're there, so long as they're going to continue to manifest, we could never belong in a world like that, right? It's like, it's like you have a, a fish tank and it's perfectly pure and then you just take some water, you know, some rainwater from outside and dump it into a fish tank. You will contaminate everything that's in there, right? So this is the idea. We, such as we are, are never going to be able to participate in a world like God wishes to create as long as we remain corrupt, as long as we continue to do all these things here. These sorts of persons, persons who are given over to these kinds of behaviors, who, you know, who cling to them, who 
make it their life goal to live a life like this, who have these defects of character and never make any effort to improve them or to change them. A person who is like that, what business does he have living in God's world, right? Where people like this will just ruin everything. This is, I think, how Paul is thinking. He doesn't mean to say that if you've ever been angry, it's over for you, you're going to hell. But he does mean to say that we cannot live in this new creation that God wishes to establish if we live like this, because this is, a, this is exactly what happened after Adam. This is how the world started to fall apart after Adam. So we're trying to do something new, so we cannot continue going on this way. What does a person in the new world look like? What, is the, what, is, what sort of a person do we have to be for this new world? He says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So notice, on the one hand, you have the sinful nature. You have humanity after the sin of Adam and Eve. They look a certain way. But when the Holy Spirit comes to a person and dwells in that person and affects changes one by one, these are the things that manifest. Now, do they all manifest at maximum capacity instantly from your moment of conversion? Everybody knows that's not true. Right? So we should not be triumphalistic. However, I would be hard-pressed to see a Christian in the world who does not at some point ever perhaps feel love for a person who is miserable, feel bad. You know, that, that feeling of pity, that pain in your stomach for somebody who suffers. Or patience, an ability to you know, remain calm and to control your anger and just to let a person who is you know, bothering you to go on and to not get worked up about every little thing. Or gentleness. Gentleness is highly underrated. I am not a very gentle person, right? I, I mean well. I think most of the time anyway, I mean well, but I'm not always gentle. This is a, a trait that I get from my dad. But it's important to be gentle. God, think of how gentle God is with us. Were you ever struck down the moment you sinned? Has it ever happened to you that you were immediately struck by lightning when you, you know, thought evil of your neighbor or you cast a glance where you shouldn't have? Think of how gentle God is with us. Every day for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years we sin, but he doesn't strike us down. He's extremely gentle. He gives us time. He's patient with us. You know, he gives us these promptings of our conscience. Hey, you know what? That wasn't the right thing to do. This is not exactly the right way to go. And we listen to it and then we fall into the sin again and he does the same thing again. And God is always very gentle with us. So when we become like God, we learn to be gentle with other people as well. We learn not to be super strict. We learn not to speak sharp words towards other people or to try to get our will by being mean. But he, he teaches us how to be gentle also. And we see also, let's turn very briefly to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Let's read from 13 to 18. Here's another example of what a person looks like who has the Spirit. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace 
raise a harvest of righteousness. So notice the difference between what James describes as worldly wisdom, which is from the devil and which causes all kinds of problems, and then there is the wisdom that comes down from above, the wisdom that God teaches us through the Holy Spirit. This wisdom is pure, right? It doesn't have impure motives. It's not looking out for itself. It's pure. It's sincere. It's clean. It's peace-loving. Some people love a fight. They love drama. They love conflicts. A person who has wisdom from God is always going to prefer peace. He's always going to prefer that there be peace among people. It's considerate. It doesn't think only about itself. Right? A considerate person uh, is not someone who, here I will speak in my own regard, because in this respect I fall short. I am not a considerate person because when I drive down the freeway, everybody who doesn't drive exactly as would be convenient for me is a, is a dummy. <laughs> right? That is not being a considerate person. The road doesn't exist for me. Right? But when I drive, sometimes I, I act and I think like it is. So this is a way in which I lack wisdom from God. God, teach me. Submissive. This is also very difficult for me. Wisdom from God means, okay, saying okay to somebody who wants something from you. This is so strange. We don't think like this. We, we tend to think like, no, you cannot make unjust demands on me. I'm a free person. I can do what I want. And maybe being wise from God does not mean always being like this, right? So wisdom is not like a hard and fast rule that you follow all the time. Wisdom is also situational, right? In some cases, it would be appropriate to submit, and in some cases, it wouldn't. Peter and John, for example, are not being unwise when they refuse to submit to the Sanhedrin who tells them to stop preaching Christ, okay? So that's not a lack of wisdom. There are times when you should not submit. But it's also wise to know when to submit, when not to insist on your own point of view, when not to you know, um, refuse to do something that a person asks you to do even though you don't want to do it. There's a wisdom that comes from God in knowing how to be submissive in order to maintain peace among people. You know, not every fight is worth having. And then finally, full of mercy and good fruit. A person who has God living in them, a person who lives in close friendship with God is also merciful because God is merciful. Let's look at one final example to illustrate this. Acts chapter 7. The martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr. He's called the proto-martyr in in the Christian tradition. He had been preaching that Christ's sacrifice would bring an end to the temple worship. Right? So... In that time, the temple still went on functioning as normal. They were still offering sacrifices to God and so on. Stephen, evidently, through some sort of wisdom, because the Gentiles hadn't been converted yet, through some sort of wisdom granted to him by God, some sort of foresight, he understood that all this is going to go away. The temple is going to be destroyed. The temple worship is going to stop. The Gentiles are going to come in. The law of Moses is going to come to an end. So he understood somehow that all these things were going to happen, and he started preaching it ahead of time. Now, these were extremely controversial statements. Imagine somebody preaching on Sunday that, uh, you know, the United States is going to fall, the Senate and the House of Representatives are going to dissolve, the Supreme Court is going to be declared invalid, and the whole entire American way of life is going to stop. Right? Somebody who preached that, saying that God himself was going to bring about these changes, would probably be a, a controversial figure, right, in his own church. So Stephen was preaching things like that in, in his day. And they brought him against the Sanhedrin, the, the highest council, the Supreme Court of Judaism, basically. They bring him to the Sanhedrin, and he preaches. And he tells them, listen, you guys have always been disobeying the Holy Spirit from the beginning. 
And then they stone him to death. Now notice what happens when they stone him to death. Let's read Acts chapter 7, verse 54. All right, we'll, we'll read from there. Somebody read 54 to the end. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. James says that the wisdom that comes from above is full of mercy. This is how you can prove definitively that you have the Holy Spirit and that you're a friend of God when you pray for people as they're murdering you. So if people can look you in the face after you've spilt your heart out and they can hate you and, and drag you out of the city and murder you for no reason, and you can pray that God forgives them and that he doesn't hold this against them, this is a definitive proof. Now, of course, none of us, I think, are perhaps always like this. We're not always feeling like this. But even so, we have such an example in Scripture that we should seek to emulate um, and I think that if there is one thing that we could pray for, especially in the political and social climate of today, we can pray to be like Stephen and to look even on persons who hate us and who are our enemies and who would rather that we die. And we can pray, God, don't hold the sin against them. And by doing this, I think we'll be um, true you know, examples of what a person who has the Holy Spirit looks like.